Susan called me Friday morning in desperation because she couldn't find one of the things that was on one of our children's Christmas list. Everybody was sold out. Walmart was sold out. Amazon was sold out. QT was sold out. Nobody, <laughs> nobody had this. <laughs> nobody had this anywhere. Uh, did we find it? Maybe you'll have to wait and see. Um, but 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 why did why did why did I stop everything and do an immediate emergency internet search for this treasured? Item. It, it, it wasn't just my male need to fix it, I don't think. Uh, it, it was because we all want our kids to be happy and to get what they want on Christmas. Uh, think about the way we run from store, all of us, from store to store or website to website, trying to find that one thing that we know will make their Christmas morning. We want them to be happy all the time, but especially we want them to know joy on Christmas. Uh, we're about to read a story, it's a, it's a true story from the Old Testament, about a man who had been promised a child by God. Uh, he had been promised this child when he was old, his wife was old, and she was barren, she wasn't able to have children. But God promised Abraham and, Isaac, uh, Abraham and Sarah a child, and God always keeps his promises. And so this child is born, and he's named Isaac, which means laughter, and Sarah rejoices and says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Abraham and Sarah's dreams have come true. They finally have this child that God has promised them. But then God asks Abraham to do something, as we'll see in the text this morning, that's very surprising, uh, very disturbing even. He asks to, to give up his child in a way that one uh, Holocaust survivor reading this story uh, said that this is simply wrong. It is wrong for God to ask this of Abraham. It's a disturbing story. But I think if you and I really come to grips with this story, it will show you the lengths that the living God was willing to go to that you would be happy, not only on Christmas, uh, but for eternity. So let's read this together. I'm not going to read it the entirety of this text, uh, but Genesis 22, and we're going to read the first 14 verses. This is God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us as uh, we look at this text. I pray that you would help me to handle it carefully. I pray that you would speak through the things that I'm about to say and that everything that is true and accurate that you would drive deeply into our hearts. And if anything I say is amiss, that you would simply blow that away from our hearts and our hearing. But Father, I pray that you would instruct us today and help us to see your great love for us. And we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we jump into this, I want to give a, a little credit for the idea of this series to a series I listened to from from Shawn Michael Lucas this year, and then also, uh, this text is hard, uh, so, so much help came from, from guys like Edmund Clowney and, and Tim Keller's book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, has some, some great insight into this text. But three things I want us to look at and then kind of ask, so what, at the end, uh, and they're this, the test, the response, and the result. The test, the response, and the result. And then ask our quest, okay, so what? What's this all about? What's it have to do with us? First of all, the, the test. Uh, God comes to Abraham and he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, most of the commentators I read on this emphasize how deliberate God's words were to Isaac. He knows the seriousness, the difficulty of what he is asking him to do. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Abraham, I want you to to take the son that you waited 25 years for. I want you to take the son that I promised would be your heir. I want you to, to take the son that I promised you would one day become a great nation. The son of laughter that I've given to you. The son through whom I've promised that one day you will be a blessing to the nations. And I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Uh, A burnt offering usually involved cutting up an animal and placing them on the altar and burning it until the offering was consumed. And God says to Abraham, I want you to do that with your son. That's heavy, isn't it? That's, that's hard. Can you imagine being asked to do that? It's hard to imagine that God would ask anybody to do that. Uh, as you can imagine, people have wrestled with this text 
over the years. Uh, in his book, Under the Banner of Heaven, John Krakauer tells the story of a man in Utah who killed his sister-in-law and her 15-month-old niece saying he did it because God had commanded him to do it. And when he was arrested, he said this, You would think I have committed a crime of homicide, but I have not. I was doing the will of God, which is not a crime. Many non-Christian commentators look at Genesis 22 and say, this is just irrational, blind faith. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, And this type of irrational, blind faith is one of the reasons we have so much religious violence. Sometimes Christians will look at this text and say, well, you know, I don't really understand it, but Sometimes God's going to ask you to do crazy things and they may contradict His Word, but you need to go along with them because at the end He's going to give you a way out and just like He gave Abraham a way out and you won't actually have to do what God has asked you to do. I don't think that's quite the answer here. How do we explain this uh, strange and and horrifying request? First, let me say this. God's not going to ask you to do this. All right, don't, don't get worried about that. Uh, if you think he is, he's not. You are, you are hearing things. Uh, God is not going to ask you to do this. This is a unique event. It happened at a unique stage in redemptive history. This is not given to us in any way to imitate. Secondly, the way that we receive definitive revelation from God today is not through dreams, it's not through visions, but he's given us His word, His final word in the Scriptures. And according to His word, what has He said? He has spoken and said, murder is wrong. No matter what the voices in your head might say. He said that burnt offerings are not to be offered anymore because the offering they all pointed to, Jesus Christ, that offering has been made so they are not needed any longer. And child sacrifice itself is forbidden in the pages of Scripture. So how do we explain this? Well, uh, God doesn't actually ask him to go through with it. There's one take on it. Uh, Another thought is that that in a part of the world in which child sacrifice was practiced, God asked Abraham to do something that wouldn't have been unheard of in his day. But then he shows him and in effect says, I'm not going to be worshipped like these other gods are. And then he goes on to explicitly forbid this practice. Uh, Another thought comes from Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, He suggests something along these lines, and and this one honestly makes the most sense to me. It's important to see here that God doesn't ask Abraham to murder Isaac. That's not the request. That's not the test. He doesn't say, go to the tent while he's asleep and cut his throat, and then I'll know you love me. He he doesn't say that. He commands Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Notice also that he doesn't ask Abraham to kill Sarah. Uh, In fact, I think if our our offer Sarah as a burnt offering, I think if he had asked him that, Abraham would have said, well, wait, that doesn't really make any sense to me. But the command to sacrifice Isaac, while it would have been horrifying wouldn't have sounded completely irrational to him. (laughs) Really? Here's why. We live in a very individualistic culture. 
our identity, my identity, your identity is trapped up in, is, is caught up in our abilities, what we're able to do, uh, our achievements, the things that we have done. Ancient cultures, like the one we're reading about today, their identity, or excuse me, they were not as individualistic. Their identities were, were caught up in the family. They were concerned with the family. And in those cultures, the oldest son, the firstborn son, had a very special and prominent place. The oldest son got the majority of the inheritance so that the family could keep its place in society. And so the oldest son got the majority of the inheritance. So their, their hopes, their dreams were all tied up in this firstborn son. Their identity is there in this son. Now, in addition to this, if you remember through the pages of Scripture, what happens at Passover in one of the final plagues? All of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians are struck down, right? But the sons, firstborn sons of the Israelites are not. Why? Because the Passover lamb has been slaughtered in their place and they are covered by the blood of that lamb. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God shows the Israelites sinfulness. Uh, one of the ways he shows them their sinfulness is by showing them that the life of the firstborn is forfeit to him. Exodus 22, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. However, God didn't call in this debt, so to speak. The firstborn sons, he commands in other places, were actually to be redeemed. The firstborn were be to be redeemed through sacrifice, through tabernacle service, or through the payment of a ransom. So the firstborn sons, their life was forfeit, but their life was always redeemed in some way. Now why? Why? Putting these thoughts together. Here's what Tim Keller writes. The firstborn son was the family. So when God told the Israelites that the firstborn son belonged to him and less ransom, he was saying in the most vivid way possible in those cultures that every family on earth owed a debt to eternal justice, the debt of sin. So what was God then saying? What was he doing with Abraham? He wasn't telling him, hey, go murder your son. He was actually this time calling in the debt. Keller again, his son was going to die for the sins of the family. His son was going to die for the sins of the family. But that's where the conflict is in this. That's where the conflict is. Because Isaac, who is Isaac? Isaac's the child of promise, right? And, and, but at the same time, God has a right to the firstborn. Isaac is the child of promise through whom blessing will come. But God has a right to the firstborn. A right to demand payment for sin. But he's made this promise. Genesis 18. Sarah shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. The promises come through Isaac. God has promised. So the real tension that's introduced here now is 
How does God remove this debt of sin and also keep his promise of grace? How does he remove the debt of sin and keep his promise of grace? And so part of the, debt, part of the test for Abraham is will he trust God to do what he promised? Even though what God is asking him to do at the moment seems like it would put an end to what he has promised him. Now, I'm going to skip application for right now. I'm doing this a little bit differently. Just let that rattle around in your head. We're going to, we're going to get to that so what in a, in a minute. What's the response? What's the response? Well, Abraham goes. He obeys. He lays the wood on Isaac, and Isaac carries the wood up the mountain. In verse 9, everybody notes the text really slows down and goes into much more detail than, than the rest of the, the passage. Abraham built the altar. He lays the wood in order. He bound Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reaches out his hand to take the knife to slaughter Isaac. And the angel of the Lord stops him. And Abraham has passed the test. And I, I want to stop here and ask the question, how in the world did he go through with this? I mean, I know he stops at the end, but how in the world does he go this far? How in the world does Abraham exercise this type of faith and obedience? How is he able to respond in this way? Verse 12 says that Abraham has shown that he feared the Lord. And that this showed itself in his obedience. What's the fear of the Lord? It's not simply being afraid of God. It involves having this sense of reverence and awe at who the living God is. Psalm 30, excuse me, Psalm 130 actually says, the fear of the Lord grows as we get more of a sense of his forgiveness and his grace. The fear of the Lord is fed by a sense of the holiness of God and the grace of God. And Abraham feared the Lord. I think there are a couple of other indicators in the text too, though. Look at verse 5. They get to a certain place on the journey. And Abraham says to the two servants who have come with him, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And then what, what does he say? And come again to you. We're going to go over there and then we're coming back. Isaac and I are coming back. Uh, But then down in verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Uh, looking back at this incident, the author of Hebrews writes, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, <clears throat> offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I think there are two things that got Abraham up that hill. Number one, he knew that God was holy. 
Otherwise, he would have just thrown up his hands in anger and yelled at God, what in the world are you asking me to do? Who in the world are you to ask me to do this? How can you demand the life of my son? But he knew that God was holy and just, and so he obeyed. But Abraham, Abraham also knew that God had promised grace. He knew what God's promises were. Abraham was there when God promised him in chapter 15 that his own son would be his heir. He was there when God looked at him and said, count the stars and that's how numerous your offspring are going to be. He was there when God in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between a, a, between a row of carcasses. They had split up these animals and laid them on, like, on either side. And, and it was a covenant ritual. And the two parties of the covenant would pass down the aisle between the carcasses. And they were saying, in effect, look, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, then let me be cut up like those carcasses. Abraham had been there when God affirmed his covenant promises. But Abraham didn't have to walk between the animals. God was the only one who passed between those animals God was saying this is all about me may this be done to me if I don't uphold my covenant promises to you and God reaffirmed those promises again and again and again and again and then Isaac arrived and the promises were all coming true and then God asked Abraham to give him up how did Abraham walk up that hill he didn't know what God was going to do he didn't know how God was going to do it but he knew God was going to do something because God had promised to do something he had promised he knew God was going to provide, even if it meant raising Isaac from the dead. Somehow, God was going to stay holy and take care of the debt of sin and keep his promise of grace. Abraham didn't know how, but he knew God was going to do it. Well, what's the result? As Abraham prepares to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord calls to him and stops him, telling Abraham he had passed the test. The test, the response, the result. Alright, so what? So what? What's this all about? I spent a lot of time explaining it. Two things. Uh, the first thing this text is about is about what's precious to us. It's about what's precious to us. Uh, Del Ralph Davis tells the story of a man in his church who would always give candy to kids every week. Those of you who have been to Mount Calvary know Frank Griffith does this. Always has Hershey's Kisses or little uh, chocolate bars or whatever to pass out to the kids. And the guy, Del Ralph Davis' church, is a guy named Harold. And Harold would always pass these candy out every week and after the service the kids would just line up coming to get candy bars from Harold and Davis asked the question did they love Harold or did they love his gifts 
Did they love Harold or did they love the, the candy bars? Uh, in the book of Job, God says to Satan, Consider how righteous my servant Job is. And Satan says, He's just righteous because you always bless him. Let me mess with him for a while and then we'll see if he really loves you. Did Job love God? Or did he love the blessings that God gave him? <coughs> did the kids love Harold or did they love the candy bars that he gave them? See, the, the question hangs over Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Which did he treasure more? Did he treasure the giver of the gifts or did he treasure the gifts themselves? Had Isaac become more important to him than God? That question hangs over us too. What's precious to me? What's precious to me? Do we love the gift or the giver of the gift? Do we love Christmas or do we love the Christ of Christmas? It's hard to tell sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to tell sometimes. And so sometimes what God does is he confronts us with his word. We pick up the Bible or we hear a sermon uh, challenging us to think about what's really precious to us, for, forcing us to look into our hearts and ask ourselves that question, what do, I, what do I really love? Calling us to lay down our Isaac, so to speak, and to love God above all things. At other times, God allows difficult things into our lives. Things we love are taken away from us, maybe. We lose money or status or power or, or health. Eventually, everything's going to be taken away from us if you, if you think about it. And our faith is tested in those times. I, I think so often of uh, Johnny Erickson's Hada, quadriplegic for most of her life, in excruciating pain now. And yet God is still precious to her. Everything has been taken away. And yet God is precious to her. Is God still precious to you? Is God still precious to me when he, when he isn't giving us those things that our hearts think we have to have? And then there are those times when God takes things out of our hand for a time only to give them back to us so that we can learn to hold them rightly and use them rightly. See, when we, when, we, when we put anything before God, it twists and distorts and causes harm to us and to the people in our lives as well. Uh, at the very end of the new Star Wars movie, the, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. In, in Revenge of the Sith, which is one of the older Star Wars movies, so if you don't know what happens in this, if, if this gives something away, you've never watched the movie. Um, why does why does why does Anakin go over to the dark side? All right, why does Anakin go over to the dark side? Because he's had a dream that Padme is going to die in childbirth, and he's decided that that's the most important thing in the world is to stop that from happening. I'll do anything if that doesn't happen. It's become his ultimate God to keep her from this death. And the Dark Lord promises him that he'll teach him how to do this. That he'll give, them, give, him, give Anakin the power to keep her from dying. And so he goes over. 
And what happens? He becomes a slaughterer of men and women and children. He goes over to the dark side. And ultimately his desertion to the dark side is the very thing that kills Padme. He loses the very thing that he wanted to keep because he had made it his ultimate thing. If Abraham had put Isaac before God, it would have eventually destroyed both both Abraham and Isaac. If we put our children before God, it will eventually destroy both us and our children. But because Abraham put God first, it brought life to both he and to Isaac. And so part of what this text asks us is, what am I putting before God? What do I need to lay down? Are there things in my life that are more precious to me than God? But I think there's something more going on in this text too, and it's this. It's showing us what's precious to God. The text is showing us what's precious to God. See, the quandary for Abraham was... How does God remain holy and at the same time keep his promises to me about Isaac? Who's going to pay the price so that Isaac actually gets to live? Who's going to suffer in his place? And early in the text, Abraham simply says, the Lord will provide. He doesn't know how, but the Lord will provide. And the Lord did provide. He provided a ram. A ram was substituted for Isaac. But was the blood of that ram really enough? Was it really enough to to bear that burden, to pay that debt? Hebrews 10, verse 3 and 4. But in these Old Testament sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices can't really do the trick. They can't really take away sin. But they point us to someone who can. See, many years later, in these same mountains, in these same mountains where Abraham and Isaac were, another son walked up a hill carrying wood for a sacrifice on his back. Another son came to pay the debt of sin. Another son came to hang on a cross and his father was silent as this son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. On the cross, the question is answered finally. How can God be both holy and at the same time keep his gracious promises to bless the world, to bring salvation through the offspring of Abraham? It is only through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. See, God did provide a substitute for Isaac. In reality, 
though that substitute was Jesus. And maybe that's why Jesus said in John chapter 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. How do we know what was precious to Abraham? He was willing to give up his son. How do we know what is precious to God? He gave up his son. Y'all, that's what Christmas is about. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the gift of the son. The gift of Jesus. So that your sin debt might be paid. So that my sin debt might be paid. So that your sins might be forgiven. So that you and I might have (coughs) eternal life. Have you received that gift? Have you received that gift? Have you received Him? Have you rested in Him? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. That is the gift of Christmas that's offered to you. But secondly, and and lastly, let me say this. Uh, Maybe you have received the gift. But for whatever reason, this year has been especially hard Christmas is hard. The New Year looks like it's going to be hard. Remember this. If you are so precious to the Father that He gave up His only Son for you, you can trust Him to graciously give Him, to give you, to graciously give you everything that you need. Because He loves you. And he's shown you that in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I, um, I pray that we would examine our hearts and that you would help us to, to um, put you before all things. And I pray also that you would help us to see how precious we are to you and what you gave up so that we might be your sons and your daughters this Christmas and always. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.